Turn with me to John 17. Let me read to you the Word of God. John chapter 17, we pick up this prayer in verse 6. I'm going to read through 13 again. We'll see how far we get. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 17, big numbers, small numbers, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them... (coughs) Excuse me. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come, that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So, children are dismissed. We'll see you back around 10, maybe 30, 35 minutes. 35 minutes, I got 926 up here. And we're going to be turning and resting in John chapter 17 and looking at verses 6 through 13. Pastor Ricky preached last week, reminded us that we have... In this upper room for quite some time, chapter 13 is where it began. Jesus took his disciples, went up to the upper room to have a meal together, what's called a Passover meal. It's Thursday night. And there's a lot going on in this upper room. John is the only one that records it for us. The other synoptic gospel, similar gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and does not do it, but John does. He gives us this great amount of teaching in uh, this upper room, these moments before Jesus is betrayed, uh, handed over to be flogged, and then crucified. And he's teaching his disciples. He's comforting his disciples. He is encouraging his disciples because he is aware of what is going to take place in just a short amount of time. He has been present with them. He has been protecting them. He has been encouraging them. He has been taking the brunt of, this, of the hatred of the world, of the religious leaders, and now he's going back to the fathers, his, to his father, and they're troubled, they're confused. They, they have a sense of loneliness. And although they don't completely understand, we notice at the end of chapter 16 that the pennies are starting to fall. They're starting to get it. Uh, what Jesus has been trying to teach them, John chapter 16, verse 28 Jesus says, I came from the Father. He's talking about his eternal existence, John 1, 1. I came from the Father, have come into the world. That's his incarnation. Eternal existence, came into the world. And now I'm leaving the world. He's talking about the cross and going to the Father. That's his ascension. It's really the gospel right there. Verse 29, his disciple says, ah, now you're speaking plainly to us. Chapter 16, verse 29. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And then with a mild, mild rebuke, maybe a weighty exasperation, Jesus turns to them and says to them in verse 31 of chapter 16, do you now believe? The hour is coming, you all scatter. 
The hour will come, you will all scatter. You will leave me alone. You will run to your own houses. Yet I'm not alone. My father is with me. Verse 33 of chapter 16, last verse, he says, I've said these things to you. He keeps saying that. I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you the truth. That in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. It's imperative. It's a command. Take heart. Be of courage. Be bold. Be courageous. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Greek perfect tense shows an action in the past completed with implication in the future. Even though he has not gone to the cross, even though the the death of, of, of Christ, his resurrection, hasn't happened, he knows for sure it will take place. I have overcome the world already. And knowing that they don't really truly grasp, fully grasp, they got some grasp of who God is, the Father, who the Son is, who the Spirit is. We learned out about the Trinity as we've been studying this. They had some idea. They weren't really sure. They had some idea what he kept talking about, going back to the Father, that he's going to prepare a place for them and that he will take them to be with him. They understood that a little bit. They didn't fully understand about how to abide in the love of God and how they are to abide in the love that the Father has for the Son, now has for his disciples. He would lay down his life and they're they're grasping with all this. Knowing that they did not completely understand that although the world will hate them, God has chosen them out of the world. At this point, as 16 closes, the discussion between him and his disciples, though, comes to an end. And what does Jesus do? Does he walk away? Does he prepare himself for what is about to come? No, he stops and he prays. And what's so beautiful about this prayer, if you think about it, I think Ricky mentioned this, Pastor Ricky mentioned this a a bit last week, is it's not a selfish prayer. It's not, I'm, I'm going to go through this and I really need to prepare myself. Jesus is so otherness and so other cares, he cares so much for others that he is concerned, not of himself, but he's concerned of his disciples and those who will be, who are discouraged and, and lonely and, and, and confused that he wants to pray for them and pray for us. It's amazing. The love of God and Jesus Christ who would pray and take time to teach and comfort even though he knows what is he is about to face in his brutal mocking, scourging, and being hung on a cross. Ricky mentioned this, Pastor Ricky mentioned this again last week, that this is really not, this is really the Lord's Prayer. We read the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven in Matthew, um, but really John 17 is the longest prayer that we have of Jesus praying to the Father. Maybe some of your Bibles might have the heading uh, High Priestly Prayer. And the reason that it says High Priestly Prayer is that even though Jesus had not gone to the cross, he will give himself as a sacrifice, and he of He is the only one who can be considered the high priest because, as the Old Testament teaches us, the high priest used to go into the Holy of Holies, into the inner part of the sanctuary once a year, and he would pray for the people, but he would come in with, with the blood of a lamb on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer blood on the mercy seat or the, or the atonement cover, and he would offer the blood as, a, as a, a way to appease the wrath of God for the year, for the Day of Atonement, for the rest of the year, and then he would pray. But the New Testament book of Hebrews is crystal clear that it is what Jesus did as he entered into the Holy of Holies, not by the blood of bulls and goats, by his own blood. 
He sacrificed himself on the cross. He himself is the sacrifice. He himself is the way into the presence of God. That's why it's called the high priestly prayer. So this is not just some man praying. And I want you to feel that. This is, this is a peek really into the inner sanctum of the heart of Christ in the very heart and soul of the inner holy of holies of God as he, as he prays. I want you to be reading this prayer this week. Read this prayer over and over again. One of the things you'll notice in this prayer is that it's somewhat circular. It, Jesus is, is, is praying and he's coming back to different themes within this prayer. He speaks of glory, he speaks of sanctification, and he, and he speaks of protection, he speaks of oneness or unity. And, and he's going over and over and over again, adding layers upon layers upon layers upon layers. Pastor Ricky mentioned last week his first one, the layer of glory. We're going to come back to that too. The layer of glory. And, and look at verse 1 with me of chapter 17. When Jesus spoke these words, he's done with his disciples. It's time to pray for them. In fact, a lot of his prayer really has to do with all that he taught. Now he's praying about it. He lifts up, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus saying, the hour of my death, the hour and the work of redemption has come. Father, get glory in it. Ricky, uh, Pastor Ricky mentioned and reminded us that glory, the word glory is important to know. It means heavy and weightiness. Powerful splendor of weight that instills awe is what he said. Glory is the weight, the infinite value of you know, unsurpassing worth, honor that God has in himself, and it instills awe, awe and wonder and, and, and majesty and beauty. And, and we said that Jesus' prayer is showing us that the greatest display of the glory of God, the weightiness, the value, the unsurpassable worth of God is on the cross. And, and Jesus on the cross shows forth the character of God, who God is, in his holiness, justice, and wrath. And, and we see also the mercy, grace, and love of God Toward sinners, God is just, sin had to be dealt with, and God is love, and therefore Jesus died in our place for our sin. We see the cross, we see how wicked we are, how bad sin is, and we look at the cross, same cross, and see how much we're loved and cared for in the grace of God. Jesus is saying, let me suffer well, let me die well, let me bring you glory well. John chapter 17 can be broken up into very... Simple three sections. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is praying for glory for himself, not a selfish prayer. He's praying that God would get glory. That's what's really best for us as well. 1 through 5, he's praying for glory for himself. Verses 6 through 19, which we'll look at today, part, part of it today. He prays for his apostles, his disciples, the men that he's teaching there. It, it overlaps into us as well. That's 6 through 19. And then verse 20, Jesus begins to pray for you. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus is praying for you and for me. For the world who will come to know him through the gospel. Very awesome. So he prays for the glory of the Father. He acknowledges in verse uh, 2 through 3 the gifts of, of, that God has given him, the souls that will be saved. And then he ends in chapter 17, verse 5. Uh, of the reality of him going back to the Father, okay? And that's, that's so far his prayer of glory. Get glory 
I've received that which you've given me, and now I'm headed back to you, Father. Return to the glory I had from the very beginning, before the world began. So as we get into this, and we're going to get into this for the next two weeks, verse 6 through um, 19, he's praying for his disciples, and we're coming back to these themes now, okay? So three more themes. We won't hit them all. If we do, it'll be quick. Sanctification, protection, and joy. And you'll see this throughout the prayer. So we're just going to hit them today. Sanctification, protection, and joy, okay? Verse 6, and I'm watching the time. Sanctification. I have manifested your name, Jesus is praying, I've manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me, what? Out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay? Go down to verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, sanctify them, there's that word again, sanctify them where? In the truth. Well, what's true? Your word is truth. For those who don't believe in uh, uh, solid and, 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 and hard standing truth, he just said that your word is truth. Propositional truth in the word. So, you can see that sanctification has to do with something that has to do with coming out of the world. You see that? I'm coming out of the world. They were in the world, now they're out of the world. They're also committed to what? They're committed to truth, God's truth. So a lot of this has to do with sanctification. So let me just give you a couple of things we'll take right from that passage on what sanctification means. Sanctification, sanctify them, means, it comes from the Latin word uh, sanctus or the Greek word hagiazo. It means to be set apart. All right, to, to, to be, to, in, in a negative sense, it says to be set apart away from sin and evil. In a positive sense, it means to be consecrated or committed to truth. Set apart from and a set apart to. It's very important that we understand that sanctification has uh, at least two, some people call three, aspects to it. Okay? First is a particular one-time event where believers in Christ even inanimate objects have been set apart from common use, from sin, from evil, and now have been positionally sanctified, set apart for a purpose, set apart and dedicated to God. Colossians 1. He, God the Father, has delivered us, talking to believers, from the domain of darkness, that's where we lived in the world, domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Positionally, in the world, in the kingdom of darkness, now in the kingdom of light. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes uh, uh, this long list of sinful lifestyles of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And just in case he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want people to get all proud and look, I'm not one of those. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. I would, I would say that's for all of you, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Some of you lived that way, but now you've been washed, it's, it's the blood of Jesus, and you've been sanctified, you've been set apart, and now you've been justified, which means to be just before God, made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see the work of the triune God in our sanctification. So sanctification has to be it has something to do with being positionally. as It is being part of the kingdom of this world and then being transferred to the kingdom of Christ. 
And that's what Jesus is praying, right? That's what Jesus is praying. They were in the world, but now you're out of the world. You're not part of the world. Now you're a part of Christ. You belong to him. You belong to the Father. You belong to the Son. And the Father gave them, believers who've been set apart from the world, gave them to Christ. Notice nothing in this... (laughs) Nothing in this work in John 17, we'll read, has anything to do with their morally or intrinsically righteous attitude and perspective and morally goodness that God set them away or set them apart from the world. They've been set apart by God and by God alone. Now, we're going to hear the word world again. When the Bible talks about world, it has different, different ideas depending on the context. When he says they brought you out of the world, he's talking about the world systems that are anti-God, anti-truth. It, it, is, it, is, it is the systems, the perspectives, the worldviews that are anti-God. Okay, That's what he means by the world. Our worldview now, if we've been taken out of the world, our worldview is no longer the things of this world. Our marching orders now, for those who are sanctified, are given to us by truth, by God, mainly through his word. So there's a sense that it's a one-shot deal. We've been called out of the world, and now we remain sanctified, set apart to God and his word. Okay? Now, if that is the case, if that is the case, there's a change of direction in your life. If that is the case, if you've been set apart, if you've been taken out of the world and the world system, the anti-God system, you've been set apart from the world and set up, dedicated to Christ, there is a change of direction, of scope of your life, okay? Let me illustrate that for you. Suppose as a small child, you really, really, really have a desire and a goal to be a professional baseball player or a doctor, policeman, whatever it is. From a small childhood, that's what you want. And that's your goal. What happens in your life as you grow up? Especially in your teens. You set everything in your life around that purpose, that that thing that you've been set apart to. I want to be a surgeon. I want to be a baseball player. It doesn't mean that you don't go to school. It doesn't mean that you don't sleep. It doesn't mean that you don't visit friends. But everything in your life from the exercises, from the food you eat, even from the college you go to, is set upon that one thing that you called yourself to and sanctified yourself from. If there's something that comes up that that doesn't fit into that, you don't do it because you've been set apart for that purpose. Where you eat, where you live, where you go to college, is surrender to the thing in which you are set apart from. And as you are making those decisions, hopefully you're growing in knowledge, if you want to be a doctor, or in sports, if you're you're trying to play. You're growing toward that goal. You see, sanctification is not only a position, it's a process. Okay? And that's what the Reformers would say often. They would say there's a difference between, and we're talking about Reformation, between our position in Christ and our process Growing in likeness of Christ, becoming more like Christ. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body and holiness and passions and, and stay away from those things. It's growing in Christ's likeness. So Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people. 
You gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Jesus prays to the Father and tells him that he manifested. When it, when it talks about manifesting your name, it's that the people out of the world have been sanctified. They've been, they've been given the name of God, and that means the character of God. That means the plans of God, the works of God, the will of God, the nature of God has been manifested, made known to us through Christ. And that's so important in John. That's why we call it the invisible made visible. Jesus Christ perfectly displays the beauty, glory, character, purpose, will, plans of God. Because he is what? God in flesh who dwelt among us. Verse 9. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. For they are yours you were, verse 16 again, they were not of the world. She said, I am not of the world. Something that, that God does. We don't do that. God has taken us out of the world. And what is it marked by? Look at verse 6 again one more time. They have what? Kept your word. The disciples did not display complete obedience as if they kept your word totally and completely. They didn't fully understand. They'll know more as, they, as Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and the spirit is given. But for the moment, they're getting it. In fact, in John 6, they said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. They're getting it. It, But the sanctifying work of God is marked by faith. Look at verse 7. Now they know, Jesus is praying again. They've been sanctified, set apart. Now they know, that's his disciples, that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. This is the word. This, 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 is, this is where my, my focus point is. This is where I hear the commands of God. This is where I see the beauty of God. This is where I see the love of God in his word. They received it from me. Now they have come to know in truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So they, they may not totally have understood Jesus saying, but they are so attached to him that, that, to Jesus, that they accept his word as, as the revelation of God. See, when we are sanctified, we are set apart, and we are set apart from sin, and set apart to God through the truth, through his word, we are the ones that, that are living a life to, 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 out of obedience to Christ for God's glory. No matter the pain, no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on, we want to trust God, not perfectly, of course, but we've been set apart. We're walking a different way. We're, we're, we're singing a different tune. We are clinging to not the world and its good and its values and its purposes, but to Christ and his word, his purposes, his value, his glory. And he says, not everybody, though. There are those that are, not part of the, that are still part of the world. They're still part of the philosophies and beliefs and worldviews. And they're still part of that which is evil and broken and not part of God. They're not dedicated to him. Now, let me illustrate that for you with some scripture. In Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul are on their first missionary journey. They come to a place called Antioch in Pisidia. And they go into the synagogues, which has been their practice. And they go there for two weeks in a row. And on the second week, though, they're in the synagogue. They're preaching the gospel. And there are people who gather to hear the word of the Lord. And... The Jewish people in that day, probably the leaders of that day, saw the crowds coming to hear Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. They are filled with jealousy, the scripture says, and they began to contradict what Paul spoke. They began reviling him and scorning him and hating on him. 
So Paul did what God commanded him to do. He turned from the Jews to the Gentiles. And he tells them that the light of Christ and the gospel was also for them, for their salvation. So you see the contrast. There are people hearing the word. There are people who hate him. And in verse 48 of chapter 13 of Acts, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Very important. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, so we see this work of God. We see this grace of God. We see this, this unmerited favor of God calling out those who are in the world to himself. It is the work of God. Ephesians 1.4, even as he have chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy, there's that word sanctified, and blameless before him in love he predestined us and adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God calls us out and calls us to himself. And we'll see next week more that he sends us into the world. So sanctification is a separation from the world and its evil. It's a dedication to the truth in Christ, but it's also ascending into the world because we don't want to get to that place where we're standoffish. We've been sanctified. I've been called out, have you? <laughs> Colossians 3.12, and we're going to go to the next point here. I've got 10 minutes. Colossians 3.12. Put on then, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, who are holy, separated, sanctification, and beloved, loved, put on, therefore, arrogance, self-righteousness, and hatred. No, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What do we do? Set apart, we're kind, we have compassion, we're humble, we're meek, we're patient. You see, we'll see this next week. Christ himself says, Lord, you have sanctified me, Father. The sanctification of Jesus Christ being set apart for the purpose, not a set apart from sin like us, but set apart for the purpose, was extremely attractive to sinners. Jesus had extraordinary beauty to those who recognize their brokenness. So should we in our sanctification too. He prays for our protection. Look at verse 9 again. I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, again, when Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, like, they're on their own. He doesn't mean, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a different meaning. God loves the world. God created the universe and looked at the world and he said, it was good. What Jesus is praying for here is against the systems of the world against the kingdoms of this world that is opposed to him. He, he's praying against that. He, he, he's praying against that and for us and against sin and Satan and those who would oppose him, right? He doesn't, he's not going to pray, oh, I hope this world flourishes. I hope murderers murder well. I hope robbers rob well. I hope, you know, those who exploit people at work, I hope they do it. He's not praying. He's praying against that. He's praying for us as we live in this broken and crooked world that we'd be enabled to, to love and, 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 and make our way through this broken world to show forth the glory of God. 
Dr. Carson writes this. I think it was a, it was a great quote. The fundamental reason for Jesus' self-imposed restriction as to whom he prays for at this point is not utilitarian, practical, or missiological, I mean, on mission, but theological. They are yours. I'm praying for the disciples. He says, however wide is the love of God, John three sixteen. however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, in other words, Jesus prayed and said, I've come to save the world, that's what salvific means, However salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there is a peculiar relationship of love, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, eschatological blessings, end-time blessings, and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together with the Godhead. We see Jesus praying. They've been taken out of the world. Now we see Jesus saying, they are one with us in unity, Protect them. I'm praying for them. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours. Now Jesus is saying this to the Father. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Think about that for a minute. It's right to say, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. All that I have is yours. Right? We should say that. Everything we have belongs to God. Who could say, but all you have belongs to me? No, I'm not. Jesus can. And just another picture of his deity. That would be blasphemy if he wasn't God. All you have is mine. Really. And because the disciples belong to the Father and the Father's disciples belong to Jesus, they're in that union, we're going to talk about that next week, He's honored and he's glorified. He earlier said that when we glorify him, when we bear fruit, we glorify God. We, we bear this fruit, this Christ-likeness, this demonstrating of the gospel will bring glory and fruit, will bring fruit and glory to the Father. And, and because that's the purpose, that's, that's, that's the sanctifying purpose, not just to grow in likeness, but our sanctified purpose, we'll see in John, when we get to verse um, 17, no, we get to verse... Um, 21, I believe it is. Let me see. Yeah. I, you sent me, I'm sending them. So, so the purpose of the sanctification is being sent so that we could bear fruit and we could preach the gospel and love people and, and show them the gospel. And, and because that is the purpose, Jesus prays that we'll be safe. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He's talking about unity. He's talking about purpose. He's not talking ontological essence. We're one in unity and purpose. And and now, let them be in unity. I mean, Jesus already said, how's the world going to know that you're my disciples? By what? Love one another. If you love one another, there's unity. Notice who's doing the protection, though, here. Are you holding on, clinging to Christ, or is he holding on to us? You see, salvation being kept is forever defended, guarded, and protected by God. And I praise God, that's true. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in. Holy Father, again, sanctified, holy. Of course, with God, there's nothing in the universe, right? He is otherness than anything ever created or, or seen. God is 
holy, not like us. Believe me, we're going to talk about that uh, in the next couple weeks too. There's a glory that's finite and there's a glory that's infinite. We don't have infinite glory. And there's a holiness that is far greater than anything you will ever attain, and that's God, right? We are kept by his name. We are kept by the character of God. Psalm 20, verse 7, some of you know this verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust what? In the name of the Lord our God. Keep them by your name, by your character, by who you are, by your essence. The, the, the great, powerful, almighty God. Proverb 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Salvation being kept by God has to do with his name, his character, his essence, his being, and the all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God that we can run into him and be safe. No one will snatch them from my father's hand, Jesus says. Well, what about Judas? Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. They were kept, which you've given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That the spirit, excuse me, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here's the thing, family. Jesus did not lose Judas. Judas never belonged to Jesus. Judas never loved Jesus. His salvation was fake, not lost. Okay? Back in chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room. Peter, uh, everybody's there, Judas is there, uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, Ju- Jesus gets on his knees and, and, and starts bathing their feet, Peter's like, hey man, give me a whole bath, if that's what I need to do, Je- Jesus is like, listen, you don't need a whole bath, only your feet, but you're completely clean, but not all of you are, because Judas is among us. Judas wearing the same jersey, playing for a different team, okay? And, and my fear, of course, is that there's some of you playing that fake role. You come to church, but you don't belong to the church. You teach the scriptures, you don't believe in the scriptures. My hope and prayer for you this, this morning is that you would come to Christ. He knows your heart, He sees your heart. He, he's, he's calling you to, to come to genuine faith in him, to lay down your, 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 your rights, to lay down your life, to stop trying to save yourself. Stop with the games and stop with the playing church, but come to faith in him. Trust completely in him. Rely upon him. He will guard you. He will keep you. It's called repentance and faith. You be, trust him acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your, 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 your shame, acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge that you have not lived the life that Christ would want you to, that God would want you to, and that you've sinned against the holy God. And then turn from that sin and embrace Christ, that he died on the cross for all your sins, past, present, and future. And trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your souls. And the Bible says he will come to you he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are three things, and I'm just going to mention this, and we're going to, come, we're going to finish. This is called, by the way, the preservation of the saints, or, or, or the perseverance of the saints, the reformers used to call it, is that God saves and God keeps. And at the end of time, when we are in the presence of God, after we leave this earth, it is proof positive that our faith was genuine. It produces three things, a humble life, 
it produces a hopeful life and it produces a holy life. Humble, that is God's work in us. Hopeful is that, oh my word, it's not up to me, it's up to Christ. If it was up to me, I'm in trouble. It's a humble life, it's not me. It's a hopeful life, it's only him. And it's a holy life. Our life will change, we will head in a different direction. True salvation brings with it a hatred of sin and a desire to walk with Jesus. And family, it's not perfect. I'm not saying that, I want to be really clear. I want to be really clear. Sanctification means we're in the process. And some of us have been hit upside the head and some of us drop the ball. Some of us keep going back to the Father. Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. God's grace is sufficient for you. Where, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Keep coming back. It's not about you. It's not what you did. It's what God has done for you. Rest in his love and his grace. Father, thank you for the work you're doing. Father, thank you for the kindness you've shown to us. Father, thank you for the rescuing of the gospel that takes us out of this broken world. Help us to be humbled by it. Help us to be confident in you. Help us to love others. And help us, Lord, we pray that our lives would be filled with grace each and every day. Your grace is sufficient for us. Father, it's not about what we did. We did not take ourselves out of this world. We have not sanctified ourselves. You've done the work. And we want to thank you for that. And we humbly walk with you as you wash us and cleanse us each and every day by your grace and mercy, Lord God. So thank you, Father, as we respond in this next song. Lord, we pray that you would get glory, that we would respond well. It is all of grace. It is all of mercy. Help us to revel in your love that you have for us in Jesus' name.